Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 186, and we are so close to the end of the Council of Elrond today. Uh, and uh, I am ha today is a fun day because today my oldest child turned 18, incredibly, so I'm still kind of grappling with that reality, uh, which is... Uh, uh, kind of fun reality. Um, but um, let me just start with a couple quick announcements. Um, first, I wanted to make sure just to remind folks uh, about uh, Mythmoot and signing up for Mythmoot. It's been fun seeing people register. I am so looking forward to Mythmoot. I was just having a uh, more conversation with the uh, with the Mythmoot team last night talking about how we're going to be uh, sort of as thoroughly hybridizing Mythmoot uh, this year as possible. Um, it's going to be really fun uh, trying to do uh, an experiment by which we really are as inclusive as possible for everyone, both live uh, and remote. So that's really kind of fun. Um, and uh, there we go. Uh, okay, and the other thing, uh, so I just want to remind everybody uh, to sign up for that, and then also we're gonna, uh, the schedule should be posted very soon. I was just we we're just working on finalizing that, um, uh, so it's about to uh, that's about to um, that's about to be ready. The other thing I wanted to uh, tell people about um, is a fun thing that I am doing in the Mythgard Academy. So um, we just finished the book we've been discussing, which is Dante's Inferno. We've been discussing that for several months now, um, but we finished it. Uh, we got to the bottom of hell and uh, came out the other side. Well, moved towards the other side, just peeked our noses out the other side. Uh, and, uh, and then we had to stop because... We will have to do the Purgatorio separately uh, if we want to do. Um, but anyway, so we finished that and we're about to start our next book. And the next book we're going to do uh, is a book that was uh, selected by one of our donors. Uh, and it is The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Some classic golden age science fiction uh, that we're going to be doing uh, over the next couple months, um, which is really fun. It's my favorite Heinlein book. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, excited to talk about it. Um, so if you go to uh, mythguard.org, go to the Myth guard um web page you'll find there's a new page for the moon is a harsh mistress it has the link uh to our main classroom session there um and uh, uh and you can go there it is in fact the web page the link right there um so anyway, I'm really looking forward to talking about The Moon as a Harsh Mistress. Um, uh, that will be great fun. But I also wanted to tell you about what's happening after that in the Mythgard Academy, because that's where um, I've kind of called an audible on this one. I'm, I'm kind of choosing a book myself, which I've actually never done before. But this is a, but this is a, a, a kind of a moment that I wanted to sort of seize, because in the beginning of September, which is my, my plan... Is that we will we'll be talking about a moon is a, the moon is a harsh mistress between uh, it'll start next week so not tomorrow we have tomorrow off um, it'll be Wednesday the twenty sixth will be our first uh, night discussing uh, the moon is a harsh mistress um, but we'll be done the first week of September is the goal um, because on September second is due to be released the nature of Middle Earth um, and the nature of Middle Earth I have been told uh, contains some really interesting uh, and very thought-provoking late writings of Tolkien that were not included in the history of Middle-earth uh, by Christopher. So I knew um, uh, I knew that the um, um, 
I, I knew that when that book comes out, a lot of people were going to ask about it and a lot of people were, were going to have questions and want to discuss uh, the nature of Middle-earth. So I'm like, you know what? Let's just read it together. Let's just read it together. So I'm going to we're going to go through. It'll be my first time ever reading it uh, and you can read it for the first time and we can discuss it together. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to uh, reading and discussing The Nature of Middle-Earth together. Um, Carl Hostetter, who is the editor of The Nature of Middle-Earth, um, is one of our uh, keynote speakers at MythMoot this year. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing from him uh, about what he does and, and as much as he can reveal uh, about The Nature of Middle-Earth. Um, so anyway, um, I, 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 I figured like... I need to read it. <clears throat> We're gonna, um, you know, people are gonna want to ask about it. People are gonna want to talk about it. So let's just let's just do it. Let's just do it together. So we're um, we're we're gonna plan <clears throat> to start that. Um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna plan to start that uh, 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 again right around the time when it comes out. If I can arrange things properly, we'll start right off. We'll start um, you know on the eighth of September. So you'll have like six days to read the you know first chapter or something, and then we'll start in discussing it uh, the next week. So. That's what we're going to do. Uh, I'll remind you when we get closer to the time. Um, but I'm also not going to shortchange Heinlein either. So it might be that we delay a couple weeks, give you a couple weeks to make sure you can acquire the book and, and uh, uh, you know, get it, um, uh, get, you know, the first bit of it read and all that kind of thing. So that's the plan. Wanted to make sure that you knew that that was happening because I thought that some of you might be interested uh, to talk about that together. It does mean that I'm pushing back. We still have the last two volumes of the History of Middle-Earth to do uh, in the Mythgard Academy. We've discussed our way all the way from the Book of Lost Tales Part 1 all the way through Morgoth Ring chapter by chapter, um, which has been just awesome. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think. Um, I think I have learned more from the discussions we have had on the history of Middle-earth, um, then, I mean, goodness, it's just been one of the biggest learning experiences I can remember in a long time. Uh, and it's been so eye-opening to me. I've just never had the time to do this before, to go through and read all of those, vo you know, volumes cover to cover, really think through them. Um, there's nothing, for me, there's nothing that... Um, uh, kind of immerses me in something more than teaching my way through a book. Uh, so I'm delighted uh, and grateful for the opportunity uh, to do it uh, that everybody in Mythgard Academy has uh, enabled. And um, anyway, so um, so exactly. So next cycle, we'll get to the War of the Jewels. Uh, that's right. Exactly right, JJ. Um, and I do admit I always spell it like that in my head, too, uh, when I say the War of the Jewels. Um, um, but yeah, so we'll get there. We'll do, you know, the, the last two volumes, the History of Middle-Earth, aren't going anywhere. They'll still be there uh, after we do the Nature of Middle-Earth, but we might as well, we might as well do that. Uh, and then we'll, and then we'll, we'll come back around. So, um, uh, all right. So I think, uh, yeah, Ambrosius Aureliana says Paralandra needs its class. Man, yeah, Paralandra is, uh, probably the second most brilliant work of fiction that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. I mean, it is, it is super good. It is super, super good. Um, uh, not his absolute best, only because Till We Have Faces is incredible. But yeah, Till We Have Faces is, um, I think, uh, by far, the, I mean, by a substantial margin. Uh, the greatest work of fiction C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Um, unbelievable. I mean, that, 
book reduces me to chills and tears at the end, no matter how many times I read it. But anyway, um, uh, so yeah, yeah, no, we'll, we'll get there. Still, still plenty of time, still plenty of time. <laughs> um, uh, so I think that is the end of my announcements. Just wanted to make sure everyone was aware of, uh, the stuff that's going on as we're in that transition period um, where folks can jump in uh, to the beginning of a new book uh, with us if they uh, if they would like to. All right, let us get back into the text. So we just had Elrond's um, setup, right, of um, small hands do them because they must, which as we discussed last time, you know, we had talked about the precedent. You know, he said this. This often happens, and and I was uh, and I would, it was a very sensible objection. Like, when has this ever happened? We've never seen, in fact, little people um, moving the wheels of the world uh, in Tolkien's early, you know, like in the earlier legends, like in the first age. That's generally not how things worked. Um, uh, and what I was emphasizing last time is that just the, the the scale is just less, right? In fact, any of the from the perspective of the third age, the heroes of the first age seem very, very great. Baron and Turin and uh, uh, and all of those other you know mighty, uh, even if dubious, um, figures of the first age seem so much larger than life. But of course, they also, as Gandalf might say. Uh, were only little fellows in a wide world, after all. Um, they were just mortals, right? Even the elves, I'm kind of lumping them in here uh, in, to the mortals, uh, in a sense. They're just incarnates, right? I mean, they're, they're children of Iluvatar. They're children, right? Um, they were not the Valor. They're not in charge of the world, right? They're not... Um, and the role played by any hero, as to quote what Gandalf is going to say fairly soon... Um, uh, is still, in many ways, um, a um, uh, still in many ways a role being played by by really quite a small person. That's one of the things that makes them heroes in this um, um, in this context. But um, let's um, okay. You're right, Gilgalady. I should mention it. Um, uh, thank you for reminding me. I did mean to say something about that. Um, a little shout out uh, to Chad Bornholt and uh, uh, Jordan Reynolds and uh, others who participated. Um, this past weekend, the Prancing Pony podcast uh, hosted their first uh, online moot, uh, which was a lot of fun. I attended that. Uh, great to connect with a bunch of folks there. Um, I knew there'd be lots of cool people there, so that's why I attended. Um, but um, it was really cool. And uh, the last event, um, uh, Chad Bornholt and Jordan Reynolds, as I said, um, had produced this, like, fully immersive uh, audio play of the Council of Elrond. They didn't play the whole thing all the way through, um, which was kind of a shame. It was longer than they had, but um, um, but it was really neat. They basically have kind of scripted the whole Council of Elrond, the entire chapter, as um, uh, as an audio drama, you know, a full cast audio drama with really, really um, uh, a, a cool, like, music and score and sound effects. It was, uh, it was pretty stunning, really. Um, and uh, I just wanted to, uh, it was, it was, I do admit, um, Hathalas, that I was sort of listening to it and being like, wow, that was like a, 
you know, <laughs> eight weeks <laughs> right there in that one little clip they just they just played. Um, and uh, it was interesting. I mean, there are a lot of things. I was actually having some like side chat with several uh, of our regulars here who were uh, who were uh, chatting with me on the the Moot Slack channel when when uh, while it was happening. Many folks having similar kinds of reactions that I was remembering discussions that we had uh, at various points when the clips came up. Um, but it was really, really cool. Yeah. So uh, the 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 music of Middle Earth is the name of Jordan Reynolds' podcast, um, and he's gonna he's gonna put the whole production there. So if you would like to, if you would like to hear uh, the full production, you can go to the Music of Middle Earth podcast and find it there. Um, it was uh, it was cool. It was definitely a lot of fun. I really liked it. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay. So but let me get back to. Um, the big moment, right? And we had we, we, we alluded briefly to the fact that after saying, when Elrond says, um, you know, small hands do them because they must, um, you know, the fact that he's kind of providing, I don't know if one necessarily sees it as a direct cue to Frodo himself, like, you know, small hands do them because they must. Go ahead, now's where you volunteer, right? I mean, if, if he's kind of prodding in that direction, or if he's merely pointing in that direction, right? I mean, he already said before, um, you know, we must send the ring to the fire. Okay, so question number one, Elrond, you know, what shall we do with it? Gandalf uh, asks, Elrond answers, we must send the ring to the fire, right? But the question, which remember was the very first question when they started like the general discussion uh, after all the stories were finally told, um, the the first point of discussion was like, who can carry this thing, right? Because I mean, even before, it doesn't really, unless it's going to stay here, but even if it's going to stay here, like somebody has to have custody of this thing, right? And even if we're going to take it to the sea, somebody's got to carry it from here to there, right? Whom exactly? Um, can we trust, do we dare uh, to give the ring to in order to bear it? Um, I mean, who is going to be the ring bearer is a really crucial question. So it's interesting to see that from the beginning, they see the problem here, right? They see the problem here. And, and it's kind of a combination of several things, right? It's a combination of to whom can we entrust this power? Whom can we trust will not be corrupted by this power? But there's also this sense of like, um, whom shall we uh, you know, burden with this radioactive thing, right? Um, and so, anyway, but Elrond gave the first answer, but but it's the the only thing that's left, right? Really, to decide because now that the discussion of the Great Rings has passed, you know, the 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 question that Bor you know the very sensible question that Boromir raised about hey, shouldn't we? Can we just use the Ring of Power to win? Um, that is, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's gone by, right? And so now the only thing left, really, is to decide who is going to... We know where it has to go. Pretty much everybody agrees, or at least everyone has conceded that. Notice another thing, like, there isn't really agreement, right? I mean, like, no one's called for agreement. There's not, there's not been a vote, right? Um, there's not been a, you know, a general uh, confirmation of consensus or anything like that, right? Elrond said the thing, we must set the ring to the fire, and then there's been some other talk, other suggestions. Let's, you know, consider some other things and, and probe some other courses. But um, 
now we're pretty well done with that, right? We're pretty well done with that. So um, what, uh, what remains is just this last question. And now here's Elrond essentially giving the answer for that, right? Um, the answer to, you know, the answer to that final question, or rather indirectly giving the answer to it, pointing to the answer to that question. Right? Small hands. And I do mean small hands, people. Right? Um, um, between that and the hint that was already provided through Boromir's riddle, right? With the halfling standing forth, um, which again, I think was quite likely all that Elrond needed to hear in order to confirm what he was already, um, what he was already suspecting. Right? Um, then there's the pause, right? Which I agree with Matt probably was a, a, a longish pause. I don't know if it was necessarily a silence of minutes or anything like that, uh, but I would say a significant uh, pause. And Matt, I do think that uh, um, Elrond has already concluded that hobbits are more suited to resist the temptations of the ring. Um, I think that we could see that in his mind, even earlier on, remember when he um, uh, when he made the comment about Bilbo not being as alone and singular as he thought, right? That um, uh, like what he's learned about halflings, right, um, and how remarkable they are, and remember the way in which he brought that in, right, um, was already kind of clearly pointing um, in this direction. Um, so, naturally the halfling stands forth, right? Very well, very well, Master Elrond, said Bilbo suddenly. Say no more. It is plain enough what you are pointing at. Bilbo the silly hobbit started this affair, and Bilbo had better finish it, or himself. I was very comfortable here and getting on with my book. If you want to know, I was just writing an ending for it. I had thought of pudding, and he lived happily ever afterwards to the end of his days. It is a good ending, and none the worse for having been used before. Now I shall have to alter that. It does not look like coming true. And anyway, there will evidently have to be several more chapters if I live to write them. It's a frightful nuisance. Will not I to start? Boromir looked in surprise at Bilbo, but the laughter died on his lips when he saw that all the others regarded the old hobbit with grave respect. Only Glowen smiled, but his smile came from old memories. Okay, now. What... What do you think is going on here exactly? There are several options, right? There are several potential ways, um, several potential ways that we can take um, this volunteering by Bilbo, right? One, Bjorning, exactly, is that uh, Bilbo wants to protect Frodo. Right, that he sees, you know, the noose closing in around Frodo's neck, uh, and he's trying to um, uh, I don't know, cut it off, right? Um, is trying to spare Frodo, right? And stepping forward in Frodo's place. Um, I think that that is a very 
strong possibility. Michael, I always think, I, I, I agree with you, that I've always struggled with whether this might be ring-induced in some degree. Gogo Lady was just suggesting the same thing. Yes, yes. Um, Bilbo, knowing, as we've already seen, you know, from the Hall of Fire, the connection that Bilbo still has with the ring and the extent to which he's still affected by the ring um, uh, and has been, right? I mean, not obviously over in previous years, but like even his, you know, we were talking about his reports of volunteering to Gandalf and Elrond and Aragorn, right? That he should go back to the Shire and fetch the ring, right? Once they began to, to, to think about it. Um, uh, that seems clearly like a rationalization, right? Oh, yeah, you need, oh, I can totally help with that, right? Let me go fetch the ring. Um, and of course, one can't avoid the fact that by volunteering in this way, um, this is literally the only possible way that Bilbo ever gets his hands on the ring again, right? Um, and I think that certainly that can't be overlooked. Um, that, that almost has to be part of the situation here, right? Now we did see, and I, I and I, I don't want to lose this, right? We did see with Bilbo. Yes, we saw evidence of his still being affected by the ring, right? We saw the lure and the the pull of the ring still on his heart, but we also saw him acknowledge it, right? We saw his own eyes opened to that when that shadow passes over him and he says, "Put it away." Um, and says that he understands things better now, right? I think he, and as we said at the time, I think he now understands why Gandalf has been so firm on saying the ring is passed on. Um, You know, uh, it won't do anybody any good for you to meddle with it anymore. Um, Yeah, yeah. Kurtzimus, I think I agree um, that the the ring's path to Bilbo's heart uh, is through pity. Yeah, just like Gandalf, exactly. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, and, um, but I think there are other ways also to read this, right? Um, I do think his self-sacrifice is genuine. I think this is a genuine act of courage on Bilbo's part as well. Um, I think that's an element here also. Um, That he is, in fact, um, being quite brave. He's quite right that he... I mean, he's being perfectly honest about being very comfortable, right? Um, And looking forward to a good ending to his story um, and that he is sacrificing all that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's possible, JJ, that his Tukish side is wanting another adventure. Um, you know, can we see a kind of conflict there, right? His, uh, his new and newly formed kind of Baggins side, right? Which, you know, settling in at Rivendell is not very Baggins-ish. Uh, you know, along the lines of what his Baggins side preferred back in the old days, right? Um, but, you know, his his framework has changed a bit since then. Um, you know, and and it is, you know, Belanxmanda, exactly as you say, um, 
you know, he has even Frodo saw the parallels, right, between the two. You know, he saw the differences as well, but he saw the parallels, right, to um, uh, to go leave the safe and comfortable place and go out through the wild into doubt and danger and to seek the most dangerous place that you've ever heard of, right? Um, to walk right into the heart of the most dangerous place. That, I mean, a dragon's lair with one of the great worms living inside it uh, and to steal some or as far as he knows, all of its treasure, um, which seems to have kind of more or less been his original vague remit, uh, right, from the party of dwarves. Um, anyway, I, you know, I, I, I think that um, we can clearly see the parallels, right? His willingness to say, you know, I've done this before. Um, you need somebody... Uh, for this quest, right? This dangerous quest. Um, you said uh, it could be undertaken by the weak and the foolish. So here I am, right? I volunteer. Uh, you obviously mean me. Um, but again, that this is a, I do think that this is a genuine um, act of self-sacrifice um, at his, um, um, on his part as well, right? Um, and yeah, Tim Bilbo's luck does make him eminently qualified, you would think, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, Kurtzema says maybe Bilbo just felt like he literally had the smallest hands in the room, right? Um, yeah, if, uh, if this quest is to be best undertaken, um, by the 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 weakest, most unlikely, and most poorly qualified person in the room. How about the geriatric hobbit, right? You know, maybe that's um, uh, maybe that's the move, right? If we're not going to trust to wisdom or strength, how about that one, right? Uh, this seems um, is this sufficiently counterintuitive for you, Master Elrond, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and Valoria, I agree. Sauron would not see that coming. No question. Um, now, Ashnask, it's his tone that I think is really interesting here. Um, I think it is... So there are a couple possible ways to read his jesting, right? Because he does joke around um, a good deal. Um, and I think, on the one hand... Um, One could say that his joking around makes it sound like he's not fully serious about it, right? Like he's uh, um, he's making all these jokes because he doesn't take it 100% seriously. But of course, I think it's also likely um, that it could be the other way around, basically. Like, this is how... He is serious, right? Like it's that, like it's because he's joking about it that you know that he actually means it, right? If he um, could Bilbo, would Bilbo really make a bold, self-sacrificing, and courageous offer seriously, right? Without joking, I'm not sure. 
that he would. Yeah, Tim said, Tim is remembering the lines about hobbits joking the most about serious things. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's his joking, it's his jesting tone. Um, especially that second, well, third sentence, I guess. Um, it's plain enough what you are pointing at. Bilbo the silly hobbit started this affair, and Bilbo had better finish it or himself. Um, I, it's hard for me not to translate that. I can see that I fit the description that you're describing. I am willing to go, even though I know it will probably mean my death. Right. But that's not how Bilbo talks. He's not going to say just that. Right. He's going to joke about it. Um, you know, he's going to and and uh, and that he would turn it around into hobbitry at Elrond's expense. Right. To make it sound like he thought that Elrond was hinting heavily at himself. Right. Um, and that he would characterize right kind of um, not 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 parody. That's not exactly the right word, but that he would um, uh, paraphrase at the very least um, Elrond's statement into Bilbo the silly hobbit started this affair and Bilbo had better finish it or himself. Um, uh, that's that's very Bilbo-like, right? That's exactly the kind of hobbitry that we see. It's exactly the kind of talk we've seen him exchanging with Elrond himself, right? He and Elrond clearly have that, um, uh, clearly have that kind of relationship, right? Um, um, yeah, Lupelia, that's exactly the quote about, um, um, hobbits fearing to say too much. It robs us of the right words when a jest is out of place. Um, yes, yes. It is the way of my people to use light words at such times and say less than they mean. Yes, exactly. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Matt says that Pippin is the only hobbit I can think of who makes a serious pledge, and likely then only because that is the correct tone for the location. Um, yeah, even Pippin has a hard time joking um, in the throne room of uh, of the king, right? You know, in the great in the in the in the the hall of the kings in Minas Tirith. Um, Mary does too. It's not quite as solemn as Pippin's occasion, right? With the whole oath swearing that Pippin does. Um, but when um, when when Pippin prese- when Mary presents his sword to Theoden, um, he does it without jesting, though he does it in a tone of it's it's slightly more homely, right? Because of the tone of affection that he uses. But um, uh, but uh, but but I agree. I, the point is your point is very well taken. That those moments are really unusual, really unusual um, uh, among the hobbits. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And JJ, right? I agree. Um, Bilbo is also serious at Thorin's. Uh, uh, deathbed, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, and I agree, Rowan, that Bilbo saying "finish it" or himself is really quite dark. It is, it is, but it's definitely dark humor, right? Um, teasing Elrond for sending him to his death. Right? It's what he's doing right there, right? I understand that you're asking me to sacrifice myself for the team, 
Elrond, right? Yeah, well, fine, fine. I get it. I get it. Right. Um, uh, and that's really interesting. And Zephan, you're absolutely right that um, um, calling a trek to Mordor a frightful nuisance uh, is underscoring Bilbo's unspoken bravery. Yeah, um, I, that's going to make you late for dinner, right? I mean, if any, if any adventure ever did. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But um, um, yeah. But what is he thinking at this moment? Right. And, and we have to be careful because I know how he's going to talk about it later. Like we'll get the conversation with him at the beginning of the next chapter. Um, uh, and it's not that I. Uh, it's not that I disbelieve uh, what Bilbo says at that moment. I don't mean that. Um, but I am not necessarily convinced that in reflecting back on it later on. Bilbo is doing full justice to the things that he is thinking at the moment that he actually says this, you know. Um, so I don't necessarily take um, his later words as the absolute key necessarily uh, to what uh, um, to what he is saying right here. Um, now, Admiral Malcontent, that's a really interesting question. Um, is part of this Bilbo trying to guilt Elrond into not sending Frodo? That's one of the other things that I wonder about, right? Um, because one of the effects of this, yes, he's teasing. Yes, he's being comical and gentle in that way, right? In his hobbitry with Elrond. And yet, it is dark, right? Um, uh, it is dark, and it's not just that line. Um, Bilbo had better finish it or himself. Why does it go on so long as he does about his book? I mean, it's a long passage, really. Um, much, it's, it's, it seems an odd moment for a digression. Even for, if you were a very digressive person, this seems a moment not to digress, right? The joking, both the joking at his own expense and the teasing at Elrond's expense, very much in line, right, with the um, the sort of spirit of the moment and everything else. Um, but then he digresses. I was very comfortable here in getting on with my book. If you want to know, I'm just writing an ending for it. Hang on. What, why are you saying this, Bill? What's, what does this have to do with anything? I had thought of putting, and he lived happily ever afterwards to the end of his days. It's a good ending, and none the worse for having been used before. Now I shall have to alter that. It does not look like coming true. And anyway, there will evidently have to be several more chapters if I live to write them. It is a frightful nuisance. When ought I to start? Um, uh, why? Um... Why does he talk about this? Why is he talking about his book? It's possible to read it as a shameless plug. Kurtzimus, right? Yes, yes, my book, almost finished. Coming out soon, everyone. Um, but I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt that's his primary motivation. Um, uh, 
Um, Brian Trusting says, though he does spoil the ending. Uh, strong work there, Bilbo. Um, yes, yes. Um, Michael D says, several more chapters is a gross misestimation, though in his in Bilbo's defense, Tolkien himself thought he was at least halfway through the book uh, at this point. Um, so Bilbo can certainly be uh, um, uh, be excused. And I agree, Trifle, that um, if I am spared to write it, is just as dark as finish it or himself. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely you're absolutely right about that. Um, I I wonder why is he talking about the ending of his book? Um, I cannot help but think. That he is, and this is why I circled back around to this after um, uh, your observation. I I already forgot who it was, um, who was saying this before. Um, Admiral Malcontent. That's right. Um, that's it. Was your comment about him kind of trying to guilt Elrond for sending Frodo, right? Um, that made me think of this because it's hard for me to avoid that conclusion here, right? What is the effect of Bilbo talking about this? So I always get in trouble with my, this is something I, many of you will have heard me talk about this many times before. Um, I always get in trouble. I always get myself in trouble uh, because when I'm coming to a passage, I always want to ask a why question, right? Like why does Bilbo do that? But why is not really the right question? It's never the right question. It's how I always want to say it, but it's never the right way to say it. Um, because that gets into all questions of, like, Bilbo's motivation and psychology and stuff like that. That's not, and that's not what I mean. Um, or worse, when I say something like, why does Tolkien say this here? And that leads you into questions of, like, what was going on in Tolkien's head when he was writing this? And we can't know that. Um, and that's not really even what I mean. Um, what I really mean is, when I say why, what I almost always mean is, what is the effect of this being here, right? What effect does it have that this is, in fact, what does happen, right? Um, Bilbo does, in fact, digress. Tolkien has Bilbo digress to talk about his book here. And I think that one of the consequences of that choice in this paragraph is to make us think of this Think of the story that is being right to anticipate the vocabulary that Sam is going to use much later on, right? Uh, to think about what kind of story is this, right? What kind of story um, are we witnessing unfolding before us here? And I think that despite the lightness of his tone and despite the joking that we get at beginning and end, there's also, as Several of you have been pointing out the darkness that we get at the beginning and end, too. And it's pretty clear that Bilbo understands that this story is a tragedy, almost certain to be a tragedy. Um, the protagonist of this story is very unlikely to be able to use the ending and he lived happily ever afterwards to the end of his days, right? Um, that statement, that good ending, which is none the worse for having been used before, 
um, is exactly the kind of thing, and Tolkien talks about this in On Fairy Stories, right? You have the kind of the frame of stories, right? Once Upon a Time is a perfectly good way to start a story, none the worse for having been used before. Um, uh, and in saying these things, in using these like traditional um, beginnings and endings, right, at the beginning and end of stories, um, you're doing important work there, right? It's not about originality and it's being different, right? Um, it provides a framework, right? It provides some really important cues to the reader. Um, Tolkien is a big fan of traditional formulae at the beginning and ending of stories. Um, he says that he really likes that he really likes that, that he thinks that that's a really important effect uh, at the beginning and end. Um, and uh, and he's saying in that with that vocabulary, he is saying pretty clearly that is not going to be the frame of this story, right? Um, whether it's me, whether it's not me, um, for whomever takes up the ring, it is they are not going to live happily after after ha, happily ever after to the end of their days, right? This is going to be a tragic story. It's a frightful nuisance, all right. Um, it is. It definitely would mess up his retirement and that of anybody else, right? Um, so, do I think that Bilbo is genuinely volunteering? Yeah. I think he's genuinely volunteering. I think he means it. I think he means it, and I think that he knows that in doing this, he is making an act of self-sacrifice. But I don't think that's all that's happening here. I think that he means it, and if he's taken up on it, he would go, and he would do it, and he would finish the ring or himself, right? But I also think that he knows it's not going to happen. I think he means it, but I think he knows it's not going to happen. Um, he quoted Gandalf saying that the ring has passed on, right? And I don't think that he truly believes that this part of the story is, you know, like now things have changed. So that like, oh, the ring temporarily passed on, but now it's back in your court. Like, I don't think he really believes that. I think he knows because Gandalf has already told him, right? He knows that he's not going to have this role again. He can't be the ring bearer. And I think that he came to understand that better the night before in the Hall of Fire. And I suspect that he understands it even better now um, in the context of everything that's been said at the council here. I think that Bilbo knows at this moment when he says this, when he delivers this speech, I think that Bilbo understands better than he has ever understood what impact the ring has had on him, the way in which he has been affected by it, right? Um, combining the things that he's been learning from Elrond, which I doubt he and Elrond have had too many conversations about the Ring of Power, um, or Gandalf, for that matter, um, as far as the nature of the ring and how it operates and stuff like that. I don't think they've had many conversations about that from anything I can see. Um, I think that he has learned a lot. Now, he has learned a lot, uh, gained sort of um, um, a lot of information to contextualize the insight that he had the previous night, right, in the, in, in the Hall of Fire with Frodo, when he came to that um, 
sort of intuitive understanding of what the ring was doing to him um, and how it was manipulating him. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so let's see. Um, yes, so Admiral Malcontent, I think I agree with you again that there are a couple consequences to this, right? One consequence is that I think he knows full well what that he's not going to be permitted, that they're going to say he can't. He's already been too deeply impacted by the ring. And if he takes it up again, it's going to be too much for him. I think he knows that. But exactly as you were just suggesting, Admiral Malcontent, I think that he also knows, I don't think, I know for a fact that he knows better than anybody else in that room. Because he's the only one in the room, even including Frodo to some extent, who really understands from a first-person point of view the effect of the ring and what the ring can do to you. And now that he understands it better since his experience of the night before, and then adding to that what he has learned today, he can foretell more clearly than anyone else what is likely to happen to Frodo. It's not only that he's not going to live happily ever after to the end of his days, right? Um, I mean, that's kind of bad enough that his story is going to change from comedy to tragedy in that way. Um, but, um, but that he, um, but that he is, he can anticipate exactly the several bad endings that Frodo could come to. And so in some ways, right. Um, the, mere death on the road, right? Like being caught and killed by orcs, of which there's a very significant chance, right? Uh, uh, when you're planning to walk into Mordor, um, is the least bad result that could come to him, right? Um, I mean, I'm imagining Bilbo listening to Elrond's description of how the ring affects the wielder, right? That passage we discussed a couple weeks back. Um, the way in which it corrupts the heart. Uh, and Bilbo listening to that and remembering his experience of the night before in the Hall of Fire, right? His own immediate experience. And I think that um, Bilbo is certainly wise enough um, to understand that uh, there's a problem here, right? Like, uh, what exactly is likely, likely to happen? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Rayburn says, which makes Bilbo's recitation of, uh, the tale of Arendel the night before, uh, even more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ironic, certainly as he's, in a sense, almost signing up to be Arendel, right? There are parallels here between the ring bearer and Arendel, right? Uh, the one who is going to undertake a desperate mission, which is almost certain to mean their death, and even if they survive, 
right? Uh, the incredibly perilous mission that nobody else has ever achieved, um, that they will certainly be changed, doomed by it, um, and unable to just return home, right? Um, uh, A. Arendel also had his retirement quite ruined. It was a frightful nuisance. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Um, I think, I, and, and again, do I think he was thinking that? No, he had obviously been working on his Arendel poem uh, for some time. Um, but do I think it it kind of comes in a little bit ironically now? Yeah, I think it does come in a little ironically, and I think it's it's interesting to kind of think back to uh, the conversations that we had about that poem some little time ago, you know, two years back, um, and uh, think about. Um, the way that he turned that poem, if you see what I mean by that, right? Um, that is, we were emphasizing at the time, one of the things that really struck me when, in, our, in our discussion of that poem this time through was the f- what he doesn't say about Arendel's journey and what he does emphasize, right? We hear almost nothing about his, uh, you know, mission on behalf of the free peoples, right? Um, we hear almost nothing about the the catastrophe of which he was the instrument, right? And the salvation of, uh, you know, the, the, the remnant of the free people in Beleriand and the, and the victory, the unexpected catastrophic victory, the biggest scale catastrophe, quite likely in all of Middle Earth history. Um, we don't get any of that, right? What do we get? You know, the emphasis of the poem, where what the poem builds to and where it ends up is simply Arendel's exile, right? The mighty doom that is laid upon him. Did he accomplish his thing? Yeah, we don't even really hear about what it was, um, but we do hear about what happens to him. We do hear about his homelessness. We do hear about the impact that undertaking that quest had on him um, and the way in which he can never go home again. And we know, thinking for remembering ahead, that that's exactly the situation that Frodo's... Even when he gets back to the Shire, he can't really go home. Um, The Shire has been saved, but not for me, Frodo will someday say. Um, And Arendel could say exactly that. Beleriand has been saved... Well, it's a hard saving. Saved and sunk beneath the sea. Middle-earth has been saved, but not for me. Right? He can never come home the flamifer of Westerness. Um, exactly. There is no back again for Arendel either. Arendel also was one um, who went there and could not come back again. And also took a treasure with him, right? Um, uh, he didn't go in order to lose the treasure, right? But, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, yes. Yes. So, so yeah, do I think that that was what was in Bilbo's mind when he composed his Arendel poem and chose to say, no, I do not think so. I, I think that that's quite impossible as, um, you know, this was prior to, you know, the whole experience. I think that it's only now after the two things, right? After his experience with Frodo in the Hall of Fire and what he has heard and learned here at the council that Bilbo can really kind of put this together, right? 
Um, um, so yes, it was a chance of chance. It was that was ex- that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, Lupelia. I agree. She says it's interesting because it's like uh, Smeagol too that he says later that he is lost. Um, yeah, yeah, he is. He is lost. Um, and I, I look forward to talk to discussing Gollum's dialogue. Um, Gollum's dialogue is one of the, it's on my short list of things I am really looking forward to uh, reading carefully and are exploring the Lord of the Rings style. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so I agree. I think that parallel is fascinating um, and fits very much into what he's doing with the book thing, right, in this paragraph, how he's characterizing. Um, so at the very least, I, do I think that Bilbo is volunteering? Yes, yes, I do think that he is vo- genuinely, seriously volunteering. Do I think that he thinks he's going to be chosen? No, I do not believe that he is volunteering with the blithe assumption that he really believes what he said. It is plain enough what you are pointing at, right? Do I believe when Bilbo says that, that he really 100% in his heart believes that Elrond has been hinting towards him personally all along? No, I do not believe that. I do believe that his volunteering is genuine, but I do not believe that. Um, I do think that he sees that Frodo is the very likely candidate. And so... Do I think that he's trying to shield Frodo? Yeah, I do think that that's an element of it. I think it's one of the things that inspires him to make the attempt um, to, you know, genuinely to volunteer. Um, But I also think that he makes this digressive speech for a reason. And I think if he were only volunteering, if the only thing going on here were him saying, Here's your hero right here, guys, right? Small hands. Yep, I got the smallest hands in the room. No problem. I mean, I got he does, right? There's a very real sense in which Bilbo is definitely the weakest person in the room, right? If they want a weak person, um, you know, there are a couple of the little folk here who are obviously, you know, weaker, right? Smaller than everybody else. And yet, um, and, you know, Bilbo being you know, more than a hundred years old is clearly even less likely than Frodo. So sure. Um, and yet I don't think he does puts in that book digression. Um, if he's not thinking about Frodo because what he's doing at some length, much more than would be required merely to volunteer himself. He is making it clear what volunteering means, right? Whoever, steps forth into this. Whoever signs up to be the protagonist of this particular story is not going to get that ending to their story, right? This is not going to be, this is not that kind of story. Um, happy ending or sad ending, to use um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, you know, generic distinctions, the generic categories of Sam Gamgee, um, sad ending. One way or another, sad ending, right? Um, and I think, Gilgonthur, I agree. I think he's addressing both, right? Who, who's the intended audience of those comments about the story that's happening here? Elrond and Frodo. Yes, 
Yes, Elrond and Frodo. Um, I think everybody... Well, maybe that's not true. I was going to say I think everybody in the room can see where Elrond is pointing, but I think maybe they can't yet, actually. I'm not sure that's true. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see how that unfolds. Um, but... Um, uh, but I think Frodo can, and it's queer Bilbo can, and I know Gandalf does, and I, I know... I think I'm pretty sure that Elrond is thinking it and has been thinking it. I think he's been tipping his cards for a while about what his uh, ultimate plan is uh, to do with the ring and how it should be done. Um, <laughs> yeah, JJ says Sam's probably already packing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I agree. Sam Sam knows too. Sam knows too. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, His audience is Frodo and Elrond, I think, primarily. It's a warning to Frodo, right? Although I believe that Bilbo is genuine, as I say, I also think that he knows he's going to be overruled, right? His offer is not really going to be accepted, right? So although it's a genuine offer, and I think that he really is willing to lay down his life, especially if it will help to protect Frodo, I think that he... um, he knows it's not really gonna happen. And so in that sense, it's a little bit safer of an offer to make, certainly safer for him to make this offer than for Frodo to make the offer, right? Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that he's throwing this out there for Frodo to think about. Um, Frodo needs to know, he, he knows, right? Bilbo has insight now, which... I think perhaps he's not sure Frodo has yet, right? Does Frodo really understand what it means? Does he really get what's going to happen to him? What the ring can do to him? Bilbo knows that better than Frodo does. Frodo has begun to feel it. We've seen it begin to affect him, and to an extent, Frodo being aware of that, but not to the same extent in either sense as Bilbo, right? Neither has it affected him so much, nor is he so aware of it as Bilbo is, especially now after the council. Right, So I do think that he's meaning that for Frodo in some sense, but also for Elrond. Do I think he's trying to make Elrond feel bad? No. Um, but I think he wants to bring it out into the open. Right? Um, I suspect. I suspect that... Um, uh, oh, oh, Drowsnake, no, no, no. Yeah, I don't think that Sam understands the full impact of this and what's going to happen and the kind of story and everything. No, no, no. Um, that Sam understands that it's almost certain to be Mr. Frodo who's going to end up being the ring bearer is what I was agreeing with, what I think that Sam understands. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, I think that he wants Frodo to think about it, but okay, I was saying the impact on, on Elrond. I think that maybe, I think that maybe Elrond, rather that Bilbo thinks that Elrond's last statement was a little blasé, right? Um, let me go, oh, hang on, I, I put it all the way at the end. I'm going to go to the end here. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, shouldn't have done that. Yeah, there it is. All right, do it again. Um, okay, yeah, this one. Um, 
This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Oh, fine, Elrond. Yeah, great. But hang on. Small hands do them because they must? Because they must? Right? It's just, it's your duty. Right? Come on. Uh, for king and country, Frodo. Right? Uh, you know, um, um, no alternative. Right? Best option. Um, they must. They must. It has to happen. Again, it's not wrong, and I'm not saying that even Bilbo is suggesting that Elrond is incorrect about this. Such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Yeah, this is how it often works out. Um, and uh, I think that Bilbo is wanting to add a little context, right? Speaking on behalf of the small-handed people in the room, right, let's remember what this means, Right. Let's not just kind of let's not turn this into a, you know, for king and country kind of recruitment speech. Right. I mean, yeah, that's true. And it's perfectly valid. And, and, and clearly, again, I think Bilbo's own volunteering is very serious. He gets it. He understands that. He values that. But there's got to be context. If Frodo is going to make this choice, he needs to understand. And is there a little bit of implied rebuke? For Elrond, right? Like, now, Elrond, let's make sure to really paint the whole picture here, right? Yes, the one who takes up the ring um, is going to be moving the wheels of the world. Sounds pretty cool, right? Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Do you want to be a hero, right? Do you want to be one of the legendary figures uh, who moves the wheels of the world? Um, are you going to take up the call to, uh, you know do these deeds because they must be done uh, by small hands while the eyes of the great are elsewhere, well, then you've come to the right place, right? You know, this, um, that's, there's more to it than that, right? And Bilbo knows there's more to it than that. Um, so I think that seems to me the sense in which he's directing that towards Elrond, um, if, you, um, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Stunned duck. I like that reading. It says may maybe Elrond is giving, or Bilbo's giving Elrond more cover. Uh, when Frodo gets uh, uh, voluntold into this, people around the table will not be able to claim that they're choosing the craziest, least likely to succeed plan because they just discussed the craziest plan of having a hundred plus year old hobbit do it, rejected that, right? So this is only the second possible, cra the second mo craziest possible plan, right? And therefore, um, who could object, right? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Matt. Matt says, uh, one thing I would set against the argument that he expects that he will not be chosen is that while Bilbo has learned much, he likely has noticed that he's the only one who has ever willingly give the, given the one ring up. If there's any quality that is needed on this quest, that's it. True. True. He is uniquely qualified, right? Um, I gave up the ring once before. I can do it again, right? Uh, you need somebody to uh, dispose of the ring. Anybody else here have experience in disposing of the Ring of Power? Oh, didn't think so, right? Okay. Um, yes, yes. Um, 
Good trifle, you're right. Not just the ring, but the Arkenstone too. Yeah. Yeah, giving up super valuable things is kind of his bag, right? I mean, that's what he does. Uh, you're absolutely right. I like that. He does have a talent for that. And he does have a talent for that. It's called humility, right? Um, which is what Bilbo shows there in The Hobbit. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, exactly, uh, GDC. It turns out he was a reverse burglar the whole time. Um Yes, making more rich the irony of his title of burglar uh, in that what he is most famous for, the greatest accomplishments of his entire career are giving away treasures, right? So yes, he's the, he's the, he is the un-burglar in, 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 in truth, right? He, he sneaks into people's houses in order to deposit great treasures there. That's kind of, that's his deal, right? That's what he does, um, uh, which is... Which is cool, which is fun. So I agree, Matt. um, You know, I agree that that would be an argument, perhaps in his head, perhaps genuinely, right? Um, uh, Would be an argument for... um, uh, An argument for actually choosing Bilbo, right? For really um, having him really do it. But... um, yeah, yeah, it's true, Mudmore, that being rich in irony is not exactly what the dwarves had in mind uh, when they when they selected him as burglar. Um, true enough. True enough. Um, uh, Evil Doctor Cannon, it's a really good question. Um, why, since Frodo has already failed to throw the ring into the fireplace why would anyone Gandalf most of all expect him to be able to throw it into the cracks of doom um Gandalf himself um Gandalf himself draws attention uh to that fact right he says to Frodo way back in his parlor right um, already you cannot will to damage it. Wouldn't the ability to will to damage it be a prerequisite more or less to the whole, whole plan, right? Um, um, yeah, it would. It sure would. Um, and yet Gandalf does it. Why does he do it? Um, in faith in hope Elrond and Gandalf between them I think over the course of the council have made a pretty good argument right a pretty good argument that this is what is supposed to happen not because it seems like the smartest plan. Not because it's the, it's the best thing that the greatest brains in Middle-earth could possibly come up with. Um, not because it's a master of strategic genius. But because it seems to be the direction that Providence is pointing. Providence has, by this remarkable chain of circumstances, brought the Ring of Power into their... Um, uh, you know, among them, right now, 
at this time, this very time as Sauron is rising again. Um, Gandalf, of course, as you will remember, is the one who points to that, right? Here we are, and here is the ring. What shall we do with it? And Elrond, since then, has made it pretty clear what the answer to that question is, right? Um, we've been given an opportunity. What do we think that opportunity is, right? What is the best use we can make of that opportunity? Clearly, destroy it. It's the only way we can, we can do what is clearly the thing that we should do, right? As Gandalf says, um, ours is not only to think of ourselves, right? Um, but uh, we, should, we should seek to make a final end, um, even if we don't hope to make it, right? Um, and this is clearly the best option. Elrond is pointing to that, too. Um, so my uh, slightly unsatisfying answer to your question, Evil Dr. Cannon, um, why would they go on and, and continue to nominate Frodo despite the fact that he uh, has already proven himself incapable of willing to damage the ring? Um, because he's the best option. Despite that handicap, right? Um, despite that. Despite the fact that they have reason um, to believe that he's not capable. And he's not. It won't work. Spoiler! It's going to fail. Frodo will fail, right? Frodo is not able to do it. He failed at his fireplace. He's going to fail at the cracks of doom, right? Um, I know that sounds harsh. I know nobody likes to, um, I won't say nobody, lots of Tolkien fans hate sentences like that, right? Tolkien fail, or Tolkien fail. Frodo failed at the cracks of doom, right? And obviously there's more to it than that, right? That's a, a very simplistic way of looking at it. Um, absolutely. And I'm not trying to argue against or undermine any of those things. But at the end of the day, he's not being sent because he's uniquely qualified to complete the mission, to fulfill the quest. He's not going to be sent because he, in fact, is the hero everyone's been waiting for, right? Um, his smallness, his weakness, those are his qualifications, right? And so when you choose a weak person... You know, if you choose the weakest person you can find, guess what? Um, at the end of the day, their strength might be insufficient, <laughs> right? Like, there's an outside chance of it. But again, the point is, they know this, right? Um, Elrond has already said, strength is not what we need. Strength is not going to help. It's weakness that we need. And GDC, I agree with what you said before. Elrond and Gandalf are picking up what Iluvatar is putting down. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yes, Irenaeus, yes, hobbits are uniquely qualified in that they're so little interested in dominating the wills of others. Yes, they are, they are, because they're weak and humble, right? They do not seek, they do not have strength or seek to assert, you know, uh, uh, to, you know, through strength, assert their wills over others. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of being weak. Um, it's part of why weakness makes it a qualification. And that is indeed what is going to enable Frodo 
um, to succeed in job. He's got two jobs, right? Job number one is to, well, no. Well, we'll see. Let's hold off on that, what Frodo's jobs are, because we've not gotten to Frodo being assigned any jobs. We're still talking about Bilbo. So let's get back to Bilbo. We'll come back to, not because I'm wanting to stop talking about the other things, but because we'll talk about them when we get to those passages. Um, okay. Um, right. And Lissa Linda, you are exactly right. How many people in that room would have had the will to damage the ring? I agree. Very, very few. Very, very few. Um, and no, it's, there's, there's no question. Again, like, uh, you know, in saying Frodo failed, in emphasizing Frodo's eventual failure, I'm not saying that anybody would have done better. It's very clear nobody would have done better, right? Um, the mixture of strength and weakness in Frodo is perfect, right? He is indeed uniquely qualified uh, for this trip. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Can we safely say none? Freebird asks. Um, yeah, I'm ready to say none. I'm ready to say none. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Last paragraph there. Boromir looked in surprise at Bilbo, but the laughter died on his lips when he saw that all the others regarded the old hobbit with grave respect. Only Glowen smiled, but his smile came from old memories. Um, and I, too, I share the response that several of you were talking about, how, how touching you find Glowen's smile, right? Um, I love that, too, right? Especially since it's Glowen. Right. And you, you, you remember the significance of that, right? Why glowing? What's, what's, what's glowing remembering? What words are passing through glowing's mind when he smiles right there? Right. Exactly. Zephin. That's it. Glowing gets very few lines in the Hobbit, right? He's not one of the talky dwarves, uh, in the, in the, you know, Tolkien gave almost all of the lines to a very small number, uh, of dwarves. Uh, I think I said Hobbit before. I mean, dwarves, uh, in, in the Hobbit. Right. Um, but Glowen gets a big one, right? Um, uh, he's the one who says, um, I, he looks more, uh, you know, he looks more like a grocer than a burglar. Um, he's the one who says the thing, uh, that inspires Bilbo uh, to go right in and put his foot in it, uh, right in his parlor at Bag End. Um, and I feel really sure that Glowin is remembering that because what's he watching? He's watching Bilbo step up and, you know, stand up and put his foot in it, <laughs> right? Um, he remembers Bilbo, um, you know, busting in to the parlor with the, pardon me if I may have overheard words that you were saying, right? Um, and volunteer confidently um, uh, to, you know, go to the, uh, the east of east and fight the wild wereworms in the last desert, right? Um, uh, he remembers that speech, and he remembers that that speech was in response to his unkind comment uh, about Bilbo, right? Um uh, and so, yeah, it's the parallel there is delightful. But of course, it's not merely funny, right? Um, I mean, I have to think that Glowen's smile is not merely a smile. I mean, it's a smile of affection, 
no question it's a smile of affection, right? Um, you know, he's remembering that other day when, uh, you know, this hobbit stepped up and volunteered for an unlikely journey. Um, but I think there's also a sort of sadness, like, because we, we've got the two sort of smiles, right? Boromir's smiling because he's, he's almost laughing, right? Um, and Glowen is smiling. And the, the implied contrast, right? Glowen's not laughing, right? Glowen's not la- smiling because he finds this funny. Um, I do think uh, that he is smiling out of affection, no doubt. That is, in my mind, like, uh, fully, like, 75%, right, of his smile. Um, but I think there's also some um, sadness here, right? I mean, he's watching Bilbo recapitulate. The, I mean, if he knows the story that Bilbo was in before, right? I think that he heard what Bilbo just said, right? About sacrificing the happily ever after ending, right? Um, yeah. Hathalas, I agree. Glowen does understand the growth Bilbo underwent better than most. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes. Um, yeah, Mike, I'm coming back to that in a second. Um, <laughs> and Kurtzimus, I agree. Um, uh, Kurtzimus wonder, wonders if Glowen is expecting Frodo to stream, scream struck by lightning. And if he does, then, uh, you know, he knows that that's their guy. Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kurtzimus, I, you know, I've got to think, again, another one of this, like, the old memories, right? Thinking in the context of what Elrond has just been saying about, like, the weak and the small hands... Glowen has seen small hands move the wheels of the world before, right? Um, he watched that happen. Um, and, you know, this adventure might be undertaken by the weak uh, as well as the strong. Is he remembering, um, uh, you know, Bilbo quivering like a jelly on his own hearth rug, uh, right? Yelling out, um, you know, in what seemed more like fright than excitement. Um, yeah, I'm sure he is remembering all of those things um, with affection, but also with respect, but also with respect. Um, but let's, um, let's get back to, um, um, let's get back to Boromir. Now, couple really good questions there. Mike was asking, how charitable are we about Boromir's laughter? Um, uh, is he laughing at the notion of old Bilbo questing or at the genuinely funny delivery? Mike, it's the latter that is always, to me, kind of... Um, if Bilbo hadn't been actually funny, right, um, I would feel much less charitable about Boromir's laughter, right? Um... I mean, it's legitimately funny. There's this is this is comedy gold, <laughs> right here, right? Um, not only does this old geriatric hobbit stagger, <laughs> I don't know if he it doesn't say that he gets up, right? Um, but at least you know leans forward and and says it's plain enough what you're pointing at, right? Um, obviously you intend me to do this, right? And then he makes all these jokes about it, you know, characterizing the, the quest to Mordor as a frightful nuisance. When ought I to start? He says, looking around as if the answer to that is going to be, oh, in about 25 minutes, Bilbo, we'll get you a sandwich first, right? Um, that's funny. Like, that's, 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 that's really funny, right? And so Bilbo, or Frodo, Bor- 
Boromir starts laughing at a joke that was clearly intended as a joke on some level, at least, right? Um, like, surely that was that was that was funny. We're all supposed to laugh now, right? That was a that was comic relief, right? Is there mockery involved, right? Is is the idea of Bilbo, um, the absurdity of the geriatric hobbit taking the lead in this quest, does that inspire a sort of a more mocking laughter on his part? Yeah, but again, it's not like that's at odds with Bilbo's joke. That's exactly what the joke was. Bilbo is, uh, as a comedian in this moment, right, the whole premise of his joke is exactly how comical this looks, right? Um, I will come out of my retirement and, you know, take up the ring again. Um, uh, yeah, that, that, to me, that seems, um, uh, very, very natural. Um, very natural. Um, Freebird says, I'm just wondering, is Aragorn smiling? I bet he is. I bet Aragorn is, but maybe not. He's kind of grim, you know, gotta remember Aragorn's a grim fellow. Um, he might be thinking a lot about the not good ending that this story is likely to have, right? Uh, <laughs> Trustnik says, at least he doesn't interrupt and say, don't say such things. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> if Aragorn manages not act to be an active killjoy, then I suppose we should be grateful, <laughs> right? Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, and Aaron, I, I, I agree. I don't think that he's scornful. Um, he's surprised into a laugh of incredulity, right? Because it is a little bit... Um, think of what we've seen out of Boromir, right? Um, the, the, the diplomacy, which I, I think is totally legit, right? The diplomacy that we've seen out of Boromir. Um, he is... He's good at this. He's good at knowing how to carry himself. And it's a pretty big faux pas, Right, like it's a pretty big uh, diplomatic no-no uh, to bust out laughing when somebody volunteers, even if he does it in a slightly comic fashion. I mean, he's um, uh, it's a slip, it's a slip. I think you know it's it's, but um, uh, I think so. I do think it's kind of surprised out of him. I think that the suggestion is pretty unexpected to Boromir. Um, but again, it's not merely... I, I don't see sneering. I do not think he is sneering at Bilbo. I don't think so. He's surprised, we're told. He looked in surprise at Bilbo, right? Um, he is surprised. But do I think he's scornful? Right? Do I think he's sneering? No, I don't see any reason to think that. Right? The laughter died on his lips when he saw that all the others regarded the old hobbit with a grave respect. What I hear there is, um, is, I think we've all had that experience of being in a room full of people we don't know very well and somebody saying something which sounds to us like a joke, like, and, and we laugh. And have you ever done that? Like laugh in something, something somebody says and nobody else in the room laughs. laughs. Right. And you're like, I, I thought that was I thought everyone was supposed to laugh. I thought that was a cue for general laughter. Right. But um, no, I guess I guess I was wrong about that. Right. Um, I. Um, 
he catches himself, right? He's about to laugh, and I th- so I bet that he, um, I bet that he me- he thought he would be laughing along with everybody else, right? Um, but but he does, GDC. You're right. He does read the room, right? The laughter dies on his lips. He's very quick at being like, oh, okay. I guess that's less funny than I thought that was, right? I mean, it's still funny, right? Um, but Boromir might have um, Boromir might have mistaken it for simply like comic relief, right? Like Bilbo just making a joke to lighten the mood, um, and so he was preparing to laugh because it's funny. Um, and he found it so surprising in that moment that he was laughing. I mean, in my mind, if Boromir were being a real jerk, like if uh, the, the truly intolerant, um, you know, jerkish response by Boromir would not be laughter. It would be anger, right? How dare you, uh, you know, mock these proceedings with your jesting, your inappropriate jesting. I'm like that would be like, if he were really a jerk. That's that would be his reaction. In laughing, he's laughing at Bilbo's joke, and in exactly it seems to me the spirit of how Bilbo intended the joke, right? Um, but um, and then, but then he's surprised. I agree, Zeph, and I, I bet he is surprised to see everybody apparently taking this seriously. Like, wait, that that okay wasn't a joke, I guess. We're solemnly contemplating the volunteering of the geriatric hobbit, I guess. Okay, sure, fine. Um, uh, JJ says, I wonder if Bilbo appreciated that at least someone was prepared to laugh. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I am. Um, uh, uh, you, you can almost imagine. I can almost imagine, right? Bilbo seeing Boromir almost laughed. Right? Can't you almost imagine him kind of winking at Boromir? Right? Like, Boromir got it, at least. Right? Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes. Um, (laughs) Right? (laughs) For he says, Bilbo's response is going to be like, wow, tough crowd, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. 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 So he's surprised at first by the gesture, by the joke, right? By the unlikeliness of the whole thing. Surprised into laughter, but then surprised again immediately a second time when all the others regarded the old hobbit with grave respect. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mike, I think in my, my own picturing of the scene, uh, imagining uh, Bilbo kind of smiling and winking at Boromir, uh, I, I kind of like that. But maybe he's thinking too seriously about his own death and Frodo's to actually do that. But he's not too serious about that to make jokes about it, so maybe not. Um, but, um, good. Now, several of you are um, coming back to, you know, the sort of joke I was making in my subtitle to the slide, which is the halfling stands forth, right? Um, this does fulfill the prophecy, and yet that's not Boromir's response, Right? Boromir does not say, 
the halfling just stood forth. Didn't expect it to be the old one, but okay. Um, um, he, he doesn't have that thought here at all, right? Um, and um, so, no, I don't think he thinks that this is the halfling fourth standing that he's been looking for. Um, I really don't. Um, yeah, Nathan, it is very possible that he thinks the halfling has already stood forth, right? Uh, when Frodo showed the ring. Um, in retrospect, it's going to be pretty clear that the standing forth that Frodo is about to do is the, the real standing forth, right? Um, uh, but, um, but at this point, Boromir could be forgiven for thinking that that line's already come true. And he's not really looking for its further fulfillment. Um, but it's quite possible that that's part of his surprise. And, frankly, would make it funnier, too. Right? Um, thinking if the hundred-year-old hobbit um, volunteering to uh, be the hero of the quest did turn out to be what that prophecy was talking about all along, right? That kind of makes it funnier, right? Certainly more surprising, um, more startling. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, GDC says, wait, how many halflings are going to stand forth here after all? Exactly, exactly. Um now, Captain Mo, that's a really interesting question. How old would Bilbo's appearance be? Um, um, yes. In the films, they make the choice to have Bilbo have aged significantly after, you know, he's all white-haired and stuff when Frodo shows up at Rivendell. The text doesn't say that. Um, I, unless I'm forgetting it already which is always very possible. I don't recall any detail in the text that implies that Bilbo has very significantly aged since he gave up the ring. Um, he is going to very significantly age when the ring is destroyed. But I don't know um, that he is aging now. Um... Exactly, Lupilli. He's described as a bundle in the Hall of Fire, which is not real helpful uh, in this. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I understand why they did that in the films, and it's, it's, it's a fun kind of effect, right? Um, but this is one thing like many... One thing that the films do not depict in a way that is very close to the book is the effect of the ring. Um, there's, um, many, many ways in which film ring and book ring and its effects on people are very different. And this is one, um, uh, yeah, as music all points out, Gollum hasn't turned into a pile of dust yet. So probably yes, exactly. Um, exactly. So I, I don't think that Bilbo is going to look like a tottering old man, um, but it is also, I think, I think that Boromir has learned enough about Bilbo and Bilbo's background to, to know 
how old he is. Um, uh, so he would be surprised nevertheless. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. You guys, I see you guys are talking about Gollum and thinking about Gollum and Gollum's strength. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll look at the effect on Gollum, but I think it's pretty clear. Um, I think it's pretty clear that um, uh, Gollum has not... He has changed over time. He looks different than he looked when he... On the day he, you know... On his birthday, you know, when he woke up and before he throttled his best friend. Um, but I do not think it is the mere passing of years and certainly not the passing of years since he lost the ring. Has he changed any since Bilbo met him? I don't think so. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And that's been a long time now. Right. That's been. Um, uh, uh, what is it? Seventy seven years since Bilbo, since Gollum lost the rank. Um, and if none of his 500 years have caught up with him in the last 77, since he's not had possession of the rank, I think there's little reason to think that any of Bilbo's 77 years have caught up with him in the 17 since he's lost it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, good. Um, so he still looks approximately 50 years old. I bet he does. I bet he does. Um, will he have aged at all? Maybe a bit. But is, is he going to look aged? I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, maybe a hard-wearing 50? Maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, By the way, it's not really known what's going to happen to Bilbo. Like, when would Bilbo die if the ring weren't destroyed? But he did give it up. I mean, after all, remember, it's been 77 years since Gollum lost the ring, right? Um, does it just affect your appearance? You know, I, um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, so is Gollum going to die of old age anytime soon? If the ring doesn't go into the fire? I don't see any evidence to think that he will. Right? Um, yeah. Now, again... I, just as you say, Drasnake, um, uh, Bilbo and Gollum's relationship with the ring and everything is quite different. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but, but yeah, I just, it's important. This is one of those subtle film effects that often, there are a whole lot of things that people see the films and, they kind of project it onto the books without realizing that they're doing it, right? Even people who love the books and know the books really well, it's super easy to make that kind of slip 
if something just kind of slips into your own visualization, right? Uh, and you don't realize that it's not actually tied to the text, um, or even in contradiction to something the text actually says, it's really easy to miss that. It's really easy to let that kind of go by. So um, that's a mistake that a lot of people make. Because again, as I said, I think it's really effective in the film. That moment um, in the movie when Frodo sees Bilbo again for the first time and we see him there with his white hair and his book, right, uh, in Rivendell, um, is not only a very touching scene, but it's a very powerful scene, right? Um, it's one of the places... And it's a very it's and it's very subtly done how we are shown the effect of the ring, right? Um, it gives this sense of the uncanny about the ring, right? Here's some outward evidence of the way that the ring messes with people. That Bilbo, having given it up, has now quickly aged, um, unnaturally aged, back to normal, back to he's returning to nature in a sense, right? Um, but um, but yet again, it, it, it points to the uncanny effects of the ring. And as I say, it's, it's a super um, effective moment uh, in the film. I love the way that that works. I think, it's a, I think it's a brilliant thing. I have no criticisms to make of it. I think it's fantastic. Okay, I do have a criticism to make, except um, it does mischaracterize the nature of the ring. It's, you know, or rather... It is one of the ways in which the ring that is characterized in the films is different from the ring that's characterized in the books. That is the correct way to talk about the adaptation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. A trifle, yes, especially since the movies seem to cut out the time between Bilbo and Frodo leaving the Shire. Yeah, it's not just that Bilbo has apparently aged 70 years and 17. In the films, it's been, what, weeks, months? Since Bilbo, Bilbo's barely gotten there, right? Um, I mean, it, it's not clear how much time has passed, but it certainly hasn't been 17 years, right, uh, since uh, Frodo got the ring. Um, the cutting of that 17-year period is one of the biggest plot changes uh, that they make in the Fellowship of the Ring film. Um, so, yes, in, in the film story world, Bilbo has aged 70 years in like a couple months, right? Um, so, yes... Yes, that's um, um, I, th that makes it even more uncanny, right? It's one of the things that has such a startling effect because we just saw Bilbo. Even in the movie, we just saw Bilbo a matter of like minutes ago, right? Thirty minutes maybe ago. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that very that's very well remembered. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's 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 it it's a month in the film Fourth Dauntless. That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, so Bilbo has been in Rivendell for maybe a fortnight, right? If he really hoofed it uh, out there and didn't, st you know, uh, linger too long at the Prancing Pony. Though why would you linger too long at movie Prancing Pony, which is pretty unpleasant, apart from the fact that they have good beer. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, very good. Okay. Um, I'm going to stop there. Because it is 1130 um, and we do not have time for another slide tonight um, but I am looking forward <clears throat> to discussing Gandalf's response uh, and seeing how um, we were looking at the dynamics of how Bilbo is speaking with Elrond and Bilbo primarily in mind we're going to get a fourth point right in this interaction um, with Gandalf 
coming in. Um, and we, of course, we looked at Boromir and Glowin as audience points there as well. Um, but how is Gandalf going to respond to the thing that Bilbo was saying to Elrond and Frodo, right? How is he going to um, bring this back? That will be very interesting. So thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Um, more next week as we return to the text. Um, and it's time for our field trip now. So those of you who want to join us in our Lotro field trip, we will continue going off into Terra Incognita, at least as far as I'm concerned. Terra Incognita up in the floods or uh, the wells of Langflood up by Gundabad. Um, so I am... Uh, Looking forward to more exploring. Good evening, Valoria. How are you this evening? Good evening. I, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm ready to go um, incognito. Excellent. I'm kidding. I know what the phrase means. I know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back up to Limlock. And then our quest tonight is to get to the next milestone. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm anticipating this will be my last trip to Limlock, at least in a while. Um, all right. Like the interpretation that Bilbo was also slightly expecting everyone to be a little amused and might be disappointed that they weren't, because he is such a showman. Yeah, yet, I mean, yes. I mean, he clearly, uh, you know, um, I can't help but remember that the line, actually not at all displeased, right? Um, yes, uh, when uh, when Elrond calls on him, yeah, he quite enjoys having He's the floor. The center of attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really enjoyed having the floor. He was ready to tell the entire story, right? He's he's gonna oh, yeah yeah. He's gonna do. Not only does he tell the riddle game at full length, he's he's ready to to narrate the entire rest of the Hobbit. Uh, you know, without um, uh, uh, without skipping anything. Everyone, I'll be here for the foreseeable future. Try the veal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so no, he definitely has that element, which we could see uh, even in his uh, farewell speech, of course, at his party, right? Mm, yes. You know, similar kind of, uh, similar kind of thing. Um, I hate you all. And, um... <laughs> well, I, I'm thinking of like how he almost starts reciting poetry, right? And totally would have done had he not been, uh, uh, you know... Uh, uh, determined on getting to his joke, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, Absolutely. you know, reciting uh, reciting verses in the Hall of Fire, I mean, um, not only does it take cheek uh, to uh, make verses about Arendel, uh in Rivendell, um, so. but it takes cheek to recite poetry in the Hall of Fire, period, right? I mean, like, as uh, uh, to your own verses, right? Among the, you know, the elves. And, you know, he talks about the, um, you know, it, even the, the very uh, sort of self-deprecating and humble statement that he makes about, you know, they're not really good enough for Rivendell, right? You know, um, uh, but still, you know, he... Um, um, you know, he he's does. actually saying that and thinking, yes, I am. I am good enough to be here. Right. Well, that, but like, I, I think he also does know. And I think he believes it. You know, I think he believes that, it, that it's not really good enough. But yet that doesn't stop him doing it. Like, he's still very willing uh, to, you know, even if he does. And I think he does appreciate that the um, uh, that the elves are being uh, sort of indulgent, right? That they're being kind 
to him in allowing him to recite his verses. Um, yet he's very willing to take them up on their kindliness, right? Uh, and do it. Um, and ask for critique. Right, exactly. Uh, and even, I mean, even like the very, the, like the, the sort of trick that he plays on Lindir, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, making, uh, you know, pretending as if the poem is like 50-50 him and Aragorn, right? Um, and challenging yes. them uh, to figure out what in fact there is not even to figure out. Like it's a trick question. Like he's posed them a trick uh, yeah, question. Yeah, and of course Linder's standing there going, I don't get rap. <laughs> right, right. And it's great. I mean, it's, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, the whole thing does bespeak a kind of comfort and pleasure in that whole, you know, performance thing. So yeah, no, he... Um, um, he does not mind having the floor and there is a performance here. So like, d- did he, um, yes, he was being serious. And so because he was being serious, I mean, because he really meant it, that is to say his volunteering, um, I think that he, um, you know, it wasn't exactly like he was trying to make the whole room crack up exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think he's pleased by their response, you know, by the respect that they're showing him afterwards, but yet, um, again, does he kind of appreciate the hu- I, 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 I do like to imagine him kind of enjoying the fact that Boromir did find his joke funny. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those, I, I think humor was sort of to cushion the blow. I, I do feel like hobbits do look to humor for a defense mechanism. Yeah. Hey, is it just me or did waterfalls in Lotro not used to have this much spray coming off them? Uh, this, depends on the waterfall. Is this new? Yes. It is new? Is it newer, yeah. Newer? Oh, yeah, okay. I, not brand new, but I, I never, I mean, like even up there, like look at how they're steaming and smoking up at the top, right? That I don't remember. Um, it's a fun Far fact. Enough. Yeah, it's a fun fact. I and mean, we could see it around the corner before we could yeah. see that there was a waterfall here. Okay, so where yeah. are we on the map? So this river is coming down. Right, this is the same river we just crossed over upstream there. Um, and it's going to combine down there. And I've not yet seen any evidence that we can go up and to the right. I'm kind of looking for that, though I know I want to make progress along the road here. So we'll, we'll kind of keep on. But it looks like we can't go that way, right? No getting up that waterfall. They like to box us in in the walls, don't they? Wrong world for climbing waterfalls. Shout for badgers. Wrong world for climbing waterfalls. Absolutely. Yeah, it's... um, Don't go chasing waterfalls. You can't go running alongside unicorns up waterfalls here. Okay. So who do we have? We've got... Oh, we've got another stone biter, right? A stone claw. And we've got some orcs floating around more mm-hmm. goblin raiders and spies okay so gundabad spies and hunters so um we are being given the impression that we're still on the outskirts of the gundabad orc domain right mm-hmm. now we can get up there on that ridge but let's see let's see where we go here and we're now well past the ruin. It's dark, but the ruin we were looking at last time. Where is it? Down there? Guys, there's the bridge. We're kind of good bit oh, past well. the bridge. Oh, dear. 
I think it's up there on that hill, maybe? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Is it neutralized? Because I got a revive here. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry you get yeah. killed while I was looking off into the distance there. Yeah, just a bit. Yes. Uh, I Rick am only one. Rick was asking <laughs> if, if there's a Lotro-like game for Narnia. No, there is not as far as I know. Um, Last I'm Airbender. Fa I'm fairly sure I would have played it if there were. Oh, yeah. Okay. There is a path east across the river to our right. We'll tell you what. Let's continue up the road and see what we see, get to that next, and then we'll come back south again and, and explore this region with what's called the Flood Fells here on the map, which looks like the next logical place to explore. But I want to get up <laughs> to the next one yet, and here we have a, an even more impressive dwarf bridge. And I think it's dwarf-made at first glance. Yeah, oh. sure does look good. Little, some differences, though. More decrepit, for one thing. Yeah, more decrepit, for one thing. But we can see many of the same. We see the same knotwork. We see the same interlocking rings looking like chain mail. But these... This design is new, right? It looks like it contains elements that we've seen before, but this kind of gothic arch thing with the with the pointy business going on, you know, I think it's... Um, yeah, it contains that diamond element in the circles at the bottom there. It does. It does. So, yeah, we've seen those elements, but I don't remember seeing that particular design. Gosh, don't those diamond-shaped things that look like eyes on the other side from here. Now, closer up, you can see they're not work, but when I came around the corner, it looked like an eye in the middle of that... Uh, uh, yeah, kind of. And the thing, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh. nobody's built a little plank bridge across this particular gulf, which I suppose is not shocking. Mm -hmm. But I yeah. do think that this has to be the same kind of... Um, the same kind of construct the same, made by the same dwarves as the other bridge and the downstream uh, you know, like the, the, the ruins we were looking at at the end of last time, not like Sundergrot up up top yeah yeah, those those that series like, of diamonds that's hmm. on that obelisk yeah that's I, very odd I recognize the orange and navy stone on there. That's stuff I've definitely seen mm -hmm. on the um, yeah, like other buttresses Berkwood we've side, seen on the Berkwood side of Moria. You see, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes, I agree. I agree. It's like a platform collapsed. Yeah, I mean, I think this is. I think this is Longbeard work, old Longbeard work. Mm. Um, but yeah. Ooh, and there's He's another ruin. Framsburg. That's Framsburg. Ooh, I'm pointed mm -hmm. right towards it. Oh, mm -hmm. Framsburg looms wow. in the distance. Now it that looks like, looks looks like a wow. That looks like a defensible position, doesn't it? Holy hey, cow! Oh my goodness! Yeah, that looks like one of those like German castles that make you say, how did they get up there <laughs> to build that castle? Oh my Gilbert. goodness. 
That is awesome. Very efficiently uh, is the answer. I can't wait to get closer to that. That is so cool. And look at how it commands this entire valley. I mean, from up there, you'd be able to see, uh, you know, see the river all the way down through both bridges and almost to the carrack from yeah. there. Wow. That's if so you, cool. If your graphics were set well enough, it'll be more evident during the daytime. But if you look beyond Framsburg, there's a mountain to the right of it. Yep, I can and just see that. there's some structures to the left. I can almost see that, but it's a little cloudy. Yeah, I can just see the mountain see peak mountains. to its right. Um, I can just see the mountain peak to its right. And let's see, would that is that that's up by Gundabad, is it? Uh, yes, that is in the Elder Slade. Mm. Yeah, cool. cool. So what do we uh, think about that then? Yeah, First I'm guess. looking forward to seeing that. All right, well... We've seen lots of ruined dwarf bridges now. Um, and also just the final note that this does look bluer, this stone, doesn't it? But it's dark and cloud. No, it's not cloudy, but it's dark. Maybe it would look a little bit more gray in the sunlight. But um, It's more anyway. gray during the personal lighting. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Okay, but anyway, where were we? I lost the road. There's the road. Okay, hang on. There's the path. Don't leave the path. Okay. So I'm going to not leave the path, except unless I see something really interesting. Oh, man. Framsburg is calling my name you. over there. <laughs> calling my name over there. Okay. I love the low-lying clouds with the mountains, you know, gathered around the knees of the mountains with the mountains sticking yeah. up from them. Oh, that Actually, looks it does so remind cool. me of Germany quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The mountain part, anyway. Okay, and here's another dwarf bridge. But now this is interesting. Uh, somebody else has built on this, and it's not orcs, it would seem at first. Um, do these arches match up? They do not. So we have the same architectural joker uh, among the dwarves who built this bridge as the others. But now who built this? Hmm. The end caps dwarven again. Don't they? I was thinking the same. We get the knotwork, and they're made of metal, though this, the bridge is made of wood. And we have sensible railings, for which I'm frankly grateful, as I don't want to Rivendell this bridge. Maybe it was a joint effort between the Bjornings and the, the dwarves. Yeah. Maybe. Could be. Maybe the, the dwarves are nice provided... and straight, not all over the place. Maybe yeah. the dwarves uh, did the caps for the railings. Osha got on them for, you know, Moria. Oh, Maybe. it looks like there's metal edging on some of the platforms as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In two people's best interest. Okay. Theory. Here's my theory. My theory is that this bridge was built by the dwarves of Erebor within the last 70 years. The wooden bridge. Yeah, I mean. that would scan. Um, because, of course, they're, they've been interacting with the Bjornings as they go back and forth. Um, uh, mm -hmm. And you know, they talk about the tolls, right? Um, yeah. Well, what if one of the things that they did once as a toll is to... Be, because one could easily imagine the Bjornings themselves not having the engineering to execute this. Yeah. Right. They can build the Bjornings, but could they manage this bridge? 
Um, I mean, that's quite a gulf, right? Um, but I could imagine the dwarves doing this as a payment, right? You know, maybe it was one of the tolls that they paid, right? <clears throat> because this is the north-south road. And of course, one of the questions I've been having as I've been traveling on the road is who made this road, right? Um, you know, who is it who um, has been making this path and maintaining this path, or at least traveling over it often enough for it to uh, remain a path? Um, and of course, we already had one town of... Um, you know, Bjornings further south, and I think we're headed up towards another one. Um, so what is that up there? Oh, it's a wood of Vonk? Really? Looks like a stegosaurus from here. Um, wood, I, well, I think it just it lives in the like wood. I don't built. think it's made of wood. Yeah, no, I didn't think a wooden Avonk, but yeah. yeah. It's dead gators uh -oh. again. Uh-oh, somebody's getting attacked by a moose. Look out. Oh, Kill oh that takes That's me back. back. That yeah, takes doesn't back. it? <laughs> Yeah. Bearing uh, in mind, my... we are now in a level 130 area, so anybody who's not 130 is going to have Right. Yeah, yeah, like us. Yeah. Uh, we're all good. Not afraid of the moose. Oh, and there's a, there's a, a very vicious bat as well. Okay, so yeah. we have intimidating fauna, including very powerful... Um, uh, moose, right? GDC suggests maybe this bridge was built to avoid tolls. Are they going around the, the toll booths, you think? Uh, perhaps? Maybe. Well, um, I, I think it was, knowing the dwarves, this was a direct route that was not made available to them, but would be the most efficient if it were repaired. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that was the modern dwarves. Because you can see how with the knotwork on the metal caps, they do seem to be, like, kind of picking up the motifs of the old stone bridge. Um, mm -hmm. But they're not investing the time and money it would take to build the whole like to rebuild the full glory of the old stone bridge. Um, but um, the, but there, there does I, seem to be some respect there uh, for the old mm -hmm. uh, stone bridge and the wooden one they've built. I, I could see the logic of if we needed a real bridge, we already have the scaffolding. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe someday they'll come back around and build a stone bridge yeah. here. When there's um, time for it, when we have money for it, when we have the right people. We'll totally get on that in the next 70 years. Level 130 fireflies. That's kind of terrifying. Okay. It's a bit. I love the, the, the mist and fog effects here are so cool. Yeah. I just love the... Oops, big bridge. Let's see. Okay. So I think we need to go down into the... We've got another road... We've got a fork in the road that's leading up here, but we want to go down into the valley, because if we go down into the valley, then we'll get to the town and achieve my quest, I think. my So my map that. tells me. Oh, hang on. It almost sneaked up on me there. Uh, right over here. Oh, whoa. Whoa. I didn't, that, I didn't ah, expect it's got heads hit. on spikes, but there are orc heads on spikes. So... Well, the smell alone. Yeah, that's got to be... Oh. Goodish. Okay, sign. did not expect that. Whoa, didn't expect Giant Eagle either. How about that? Okay. Fonglin. All right. And Scotterding Wargsbane over there. Okay, well, let me first address the. No, there is no stable master. This horse is in charge, apparently. Well, if the eagles can be in charge, why not the horse? Yeah, I mean, I guess the eagle 
is the one who's we... the one actually in charge here. Well, there um, are horse lords. I'm sure there are horse, you know, departments of transportation. Right. There we go. Yep. All right. There we are. Bound to the miles to the milestone. Quest huzzah, achieved. Huzzah. Quest achieved, and I guess I was I was gonna say let's look around the town later, but this is not much of a town. We can look around it right now. There are yeah. two, three structures, all of which are kind of lean-tos. So this is a no wall, just hanging furs kind of. It's like a it's it's a trapper cabin. It's like a yeah. It's a shack you would use during hunting season and then abandon when it's too cold because you have no walls. Right, we've got uh, beeswax, Bjorning beeswax candles. Uh, we've got berries, porridge, and honey cakes, and what is that, sardines? Oh, definitely beeswax candles. Uh, let's see. Yeah, sardines and then what looks like chestnuts, maybe, over there? Yeah, oh yeah, that's chestnuts, all right. And we've got milk, and yeah. There's always I, the honey cakes. Clearly Bjorning, right? I mean, clearly... Oh, it's, it's porridge with berries. It's porridge with berries. Right, yeah. yeah, it's porridge with berries over there. And then just the berries. Nuts. Oh, man, I'm hungry what now. I, what I think to be like sardines or herring, you know, some kind of small fish. Um, um, different kinds yeah, of Yeah, JJ, I was thinking the same thing. I was surprised to see that, but it would make sense, right? I mean, Bjorn, Bjorn doesn't eat, you know, Bjorn isn't a vegetarian because, you know, for like health reasons, right? He's a vegetarian because the beasts are his friends. Um, but I doubt the little fishes, apparently they are not his friends, right? He does not apparently look at the little herrings of the stream um, uh, as if they were his own children. Um, so it's the only thing on this table, the eagles eat. Right. That's true. You, you think that like the, that's the eagles bowl. That's like, <laughs> Well, I, I suppose it'd be like it'd be like eating a bowl full of M and M's. I suppose rather right. than a meal. But. <laughs> right, yeah, it is a big bowl. I agree, JJ. I, okay, now that's that's I, that that's what I'm going to. Uh, that's that's I think what I'm going to choose to believe that that is uh, the meal portion of the eagle. I think that's 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 fun. That's fun. It's a little snack that they created for Fungland here. Um, and, uh, oh dear, oh look, Warg's bed, this is, I didn't notice, the enormous Warg corpse, uh, though arguably I should have, as it's huge, and lying And right the guy's here. name. And, <laughs> I, yeah, well, that he could have gotten without having a corpse immediately at his feet, but it seems the more fitting. Um, he could be named after the Warg's name, Flower. <laughs> Maybe. Prominence, yeah. I wonder you didn't see him, it's the size of a hill. Well, yeah, I didn't register as a corpse because it's so big. Um, we have all the much smaller pelts hanging up, which are presumably also warg or wolf pelts. Um, this over here is just storage. What is this, a mailbox? Nice. A little sack with scrolls in it. Oh, it is. That's good. He does get the mail here. That's nice. That's fished nice. for the mail. And stuff in barrels, foodstuffs, right? Oh, there's more fish over there in case the eagle gets more hungry. Um, and cabbages, which the eagle would presumably not appreciate as much. And um, are there apples or onions over here? Well, they got apple trees. Right, yeah, yeah, apples exactly. Apple, apple trees growing right here. So 
No, this is a very Bjorning. So this guy's got to be a Bjorning. Um, interesting that his... Um, <laughs> also didn't notice the warg on his shoulder there. The war, the warg pelt with its head. That's nice. Subtle. Oh, it's subtle. I, I, it's... Um, um, wow. Yeah. That is like that is like Ren Fair costume kind of thing. And like I don't hate the, it though. It kind of works. The the ear of the warg would be like right in the side of his face. It's pretty intense. But um like a bargist than a warg. Yeah. Oh wow. His belt buckle is interesting, JJ. Is that that's a oh, yeah, that's Presumably, is that a, is is that a dying warg or is that like a bear face? I think it's it looks like a canine nose, doesn't oh, it? It's a big face, but those teeth look very canine. Yeah, I think you you think he catches clothes on the little thing sticking out below the belt circle. Yeah, I think he'd catch a lot of things there. Right, this is uh, um, yeah, he's definitely he's got his sartorial theme and he is running with it right he is yep. really leaning into it you think his parents um, just named him that and he figured he might as well live up to it something like that oh well look you can see that the rope that he used or is, there, or is that his bow is that a bow strung on his back or something I can't even tell because of the war gear is that thing attached to the war gear I can't tell if this is a thing that straps the warg head onto his shoulder, or if kinda that's... kind of looks like it, though. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. I think so. Warg like on a necklace. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like a warg head. on a necklace. Because it's not a full pelt. It's just the head. It's just like, I'm going to taxidermy the top half of an orc's, of a warg's head, and you use it as a shoulder guard. Which well, impl- smells don't bother him, judging from the orc heads outside. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So definitely reminding us of the uh, fierceness of Bjorn and how Bjorn was such a bad enemy uh, to the orcs and wargs. Um, orc head on pole, you know, on a stake and warg pelt strapped up uh, for curing is just what we saw in The Hobbit, right, at Bjorn's mm-hmm. house. Um, and, of course, the whole thing is darker than that, right? I mean, the the goblin, you know, the, the orc and the warg that he captured, those are the ones he interrogated, right? Yeah. So it's like, first I tortured them until they told me the whole story, and then I slaughtered them and brought back their body parts, right, to hang up as trophies. Like, it's... It's a, he's a bad enemy, right? I mean, it's, it's not spelled out like super, uh, explicitly, but, um, but it's pretty clear no. that there's an ugly yeah. scene behind what, uh, um, what Bjorn tells us there. Um, it kind of has its own rules on that one. Yep. And this guy is absolutely following in the footsteps here. Um, well, that's cool. And, oh, and here's the, here's the vegetable garden. Right, we got some radishes. Right, we got the cabbages over carrots. there. Strawberries. Strawberries. Potatoes. Carrots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. 
That's good. Well, I mean, so he no clearly one... lives here because he has a bed. He's got a he's got a special yep. staple for his horse. But he has visitors because otherwise, why have multiple logs over the fire, around the fire where people around the down. fire? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And the, and the, and the cooking pots are not a temporary shack because it's got stone foundations. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's, this is not a, yeah, this is not a temporary thing at all. You're right. I mean, he's built with stone, not all out of stone. Um, but this, yeah, this is somebody who he is one with the outdoors, right? He doesn't believe in walls. At least not all or four walls. Right, exactly. This is a tough dude who, who likes to live outside. Um, and probably rolls himself up in his own fur when he goes to sleep at night. So he doesn't need um, Yeah, yeah. he can, can. Now, this is a really nice little sort of self, you know, sustaining little enclave Take. here. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he's friends with eagles, obviously, that the eagle is coming in to visit him, is, um, you know, also tells us some really interesting things about the culture of this area. Right, their connection with the eagles and the and the and the Carrick. Um, um, also, what seems to have been the dwarf bridge. I mean, the dwarf, the bridge recently rebuilt by the dwarves. Um, also, mm -hmm. kind of tells us, I think, that he probably um, and any others that live up here, cheating and looking at the map. Well, we don't know. Somebody apparently lives north of Fromsburg there, enough to have a stable master, but we'll see. Um, but. Um, uh, but yeah, and obviously not somebody who is worried about the uh, uh, scouts from Gundabad who come down in this direction. Oh, this guy is cool. I'm concerned about supply chains. Right. Uh, he he provides for himself. He's got his own garden. He clearly does his own hunting. Um, He's got... Yeah. Now, I don't know what Thokvist means, uh, JJ. I was wondering that, too. Um, but... Um, yeah, and I expected it from seeing it on the map. I expected it to be a town. Um, a town is what I was looking for. And of course, that is not at all uh, what we have found. Just this one guy's house, um, which is interesting. So, yeah, cool. Well, we shall, with uh, the very intimidating scarting Wargsbane's permission, uh, use this as the base for our further explanations. Uh, next time we will go back south into the flood fells and see what we find up there, into the flood hells and up into the mist hollow uh, there. Um, and then once we do that, we'll head back over across the river uh, and see what we can find over in that direction, and then we'll continue to head up towards uh, Gundabad and see what we find. But Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for helping me to achieve my quest, coming to this unexpected ending and conclusion of it, and we shall continue our explorations next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Good night.